enough of the mumbo jumbo. I've had enough of the dreams, the visions, the dwarfs, the giants, Tibet, and the rest of the hocus pocus. No, we got hard evidence against Ben Horn. Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of A Damn Fine Podcast, the podcast that's revisiting, reanalyzing, rewatching, re-enjoying, and re-devouring Twin Peaks one episode at a time. I'm Ron Richards, and with me as always is Tom Merritt. So good to be here in the thick, in the thick of season two. I don't know if you heard me stammer for a moment, but I almost called you Tom Hanks because we've been talking a lot about Tom Hanks on my well, other show. And I so, get that a lot. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I po- never... Never get that. I apologize, my good friend Tom. Uh, Uh, No, I mean, Oscar award-winning Tom Hanks was great in Sully, which I just saw recently. So, you know, I take it as a compliment. Listen, Tom, you're an award-winning podcaster, so you're right up there. That's right. um, May not be an Oscar, but... (laughs) Yes, and we are here, as you said, to to enjoy the wonderfulness of Twin Peaks. And we're flying solo this week, just you and me doing an episode old style, no guests. Uh, But we've got some great guests planned coming, so stay tuned for those. Uh, But we are here to get right into it. Normally, I'm used to having the chatter with the guests about their background, but we can just dive right into it now. Well, I started uh, in Southern <laughs> Illinois, Ron. No, it, yeah, well, absolutely. Let's let's get into it. Uh, I can't wait to hear if Carol Burnett won the night. Well, yeah. So here we are. We're talking about season two, episode eight, or episode fifteen, or episode sixteen, <laughs> depending on how you count. Um, uh, which, by the way, I realized on Wikipedia they list the Twin Peaks episodes, and there's literally two numbers. They they do reflect the the numbering based off of the uh, pilot, and then as well as not including the pilot, which is just the confusion is that's to me that's the Christmas gift of doing this is finding the confusion of the numbering. But um, I f- I feel like, and I don't mean to speak for David Lynch, yeah. I would never do such a thing, but I do feel that he doesn't mind. He probably loves that kind probably, of confusion. Yeah, he loves the chaos. I think so. I yeah. think you're right too. But um, all right, so we are here talking about season two, episode eight. Uh, the German title, Drive with a Dead Girl, uh, which is pretty on the nose when it comes for, comes to the titles. Uh. Uh, yeah, I, usually these, and admittedly made-up titles, uh, aren't nearly as literal uh, and yet pertinent. They're either one or the other. Right, actually, yeah. they're very rarely pertinent. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this one uh, aired on November 17th, 1990, uh, and it was written by Caleb Chanel and directed by Scott Frost. Or do I have that the other way around? It was. Oh, I think Caleb would was, do the directing. You're right. No? It was yeah. It was Caleb's directed director. by Caleb Deschanel, written yeah. by Scott Frost. That makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah, sure. Mainly because Scott Frost, uh, you might recognize the last name. Uh, he is the brother of Mark Frost. So I'm imagining it like this. This is not how it happened. Okay. Uh, David Lynch, Mark Frost, exhausted from the last episode yes. where we finally reveal Leland is Bob. They come off the court sweaty and like <laughs> high five uh, fresh Caleb Deschanel and Scott Frost as they enter to take over the next episode. Uh, possibly. Or it could just be that Mark Frost was like, hey, brother, let me throw some work your way. Yeah, probably. Um, and also, it's interesting to note that uh, Twin Peaks fans might recognize Scott Frost's name uh, as the author of the uh, Special Agent Dale Cooper autobiography book. 
Ah, uh, yes. That, that was released around. I gotta look at the the uh, the release date for that because I know the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer was released um, the summer between the show, and I feel like I feel he, like Cooper was released later. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do, I do too. But he did uh, he did uh, he did write it. Uh, it's the autobi- autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper. Cooper, my life, my tapes. Um, which oh here it is yeah here it is it was uh, it was first published on May first nineteen ninety one so it came okay, out, yeah it came out after season two so sure. uh, to give you some concept uh, context there um, well, you want to have all the tapes yeah so you might remember last week the the big reveal episode uh, and the ratings were high back up to seventeen million uh, this episode dips back down but higher than where they were. Um, before the big reveal, they were hovering around the 11, 12 million mark. This episode came in at 13.3 million viewers um, in the ratings. And this time, Tom, it came in second in the ratings. Oh. So Carol and Company rebounded with 21 million viewers. Twin Peaks came with 13. CBS coming in the rear with 8 million viewers for an episode of Wise Guy. Uh, phrasing. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Twin yep. Peaks yep. on so. on Saturday Saturday night. Is that what you Saturday said? night? Saturday, yeah. November seventeenth. So uh, hey, by I, the way, okay. So we're always talking about like how the share, the the rating yeah. number, is very big compared to rating numbers. And I've been meaning to do this for a while. Thirteen point three million is yeah. what Twin Peaks got. And what was the rating again? Do we have that? Did we have that? Um, yeah, I, I stopped talking about the rating and the share because that's kind of inside baseball-y. I've been going yeah, with, yeah. The, with the audience. But so, for example, on this episode, November 17, 1990, Twin Peaks had an audience of 13.3 million viewers and 8.2 rating, which represents a 16 share, 16% of the audience. Okay. 8.2, big. Yeah. We don't get those kind of ratings anymore. No. However, uh, I looked this up for February 15th, NCIS on CBS got a 1.8 rating, 15.05 million total viewers. Interesting. Interesting. So there's, there's just more viewers now? I, yeah, there are more TVs. There are more, I don't know. Yeah, that's the, I, 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 I took a class in this stuff in college in the 90s. I know. I took and- a class in this at Tech TV, actually. <laughs> they made us all learn this and... I should be able to tell you the answer too. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe somebody somebody who works in TV broadcasting right now can explain it to us. You can write it. Sure. Feedback at damnfinepodcast.com. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So, so Scott Frost, the brother of Mark Frost, the writer of the uh, Cooper autobiography, Caleb Deschanel. We've we've seen his work before. We know, you know. So, like you said, kind of the B team here. Um, and this is the big episode after we now we know that uh, Leland Palmer is Bob. And uh, and we were where we last left off. Ben Horn. It still was, feels spoilery for, for us to say it, but I'm like, oh no, it's fine. It's fine. It Everybody knows now. It, it you shouldn't be listening to this without being expected to be spoiled. Yeah, it, yeah. We don't have to point. worry about that. Yeah, at this point, we can we can we can stop dancing around it. <laughs> yeah. Dance, dancing. Wow. Well, um, yeah. Ew, yeah. It's creepy. But yeah, no. So I, I still haven't shaken off the the ill effects of last week's episode. But uh, and this this episode doesn't help because we open up on what is basically like a horror movie shot of the Palmer House at night. Right. Yeah, it's just spooky sounds. Yeah. Like they don't even mean anything, and and that horror sh- horror movie shot of yeah. the house. Yeah, and and you know, and and they hold on that shot for a while, and we know that that the night before Bob slash Leland killed Maddie, and so it's like that eerie kind of reminder of what the horrible thing that we just saw, and then you know, kind of the shot goes today, and goes it moves from night to day, not to today today. 
of 2017 because that'd be weird but, um, <laughs> uh, and they go back to the Palmer house and we get the same kind of lingering shots on Laura, the Laura Palmer photo and we get a sense that we're in the in the room and I'm I, I, I just the stress of thinking what's going to happen next I would never have predicted Leland working on his putting yeah, just, <laughs> well, well even dry he's yeah. working on his his chipping, right, I guess. Yeah, something. Maybe? Yeah, because there are golf balls all over the living room, right? Yeah, and he's and he's he's launching them into the air, uh, 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 bouncing off the sofa. I think, if yep. I remember right. Oh man, yeah. So uh, so he's chipping. He's working on his chip shot onto the onto the onto the chair or the sofa. Um, and he's interrupted by Donna and James stopping by to say goodbye to Maddie because this is the day that Maddie's supposed to leave. And uh, Leland tells them that oh she's gone, she left, and she was pretty disappointed they didn't come by last night. Dropped uh, her off at the bus station twenty minutes ago. So weird, liar. I know, such a liar. And what I unless he did. Yeah. I know we know this is not true, but at that point, yeah, I yeah. don't think I thought this is the first time through. But at that point, I'm like, oh, maybe he did drop her off at the right, bus yeah, station. We don't we don't know what he did. Yeah. So yeah. um, so they're interrupted by Mrs. Palmer upstairs moaning for Leland, and so he goes off to go to go to go to Sarah Palmer, and Donna and James share a laugh when they see all the golf balls because they think it's just. Crazy that may be one of the goofy. creepiest parts of the scene yeah. is knowing what we know and then like, oh, that that Leland, yeah. what a card with his golf balls. Yeah, like, no, that's a sign of madness. Get out. Yeah, exactly. But they just kind of laugh it off. And then Leland comes back downstairs and, and tells them that, you know, they can write to Maddie. She'd love to hear from them. And I just got to think, I know it's 1990, but like she's got a phone. Right, she's got her. She's got a job, an apartment. I'm sure she's got you a phone. Also, call her. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. because oh, Bob's from the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Who knows? Um, so he gets rid of uh, Donna and James, and then uh, he's he's adjusting. He goes to the mirror to adjust his tie, and we see the reflection of Bob back in the mirror. And ah. you should never show Bob in the first five minutes of the episode because now I'm horrified. Um, <laughs> Yeah, in, in my notes, I just wrote Bob, 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 <laughs> um, and Bob, then, Bob, more Bob, and then uh, Mrs. Palmer yells down from the upstairs again uh, to remind Leland to sign them up for Glenn Miller night at the club, uh, which he says uh, he will do, dear. And uh, he goes to get his golf bag, which, as we we realize, has got Maddie in it. Ah, um, uh, well, oh. <laughs> Willie. Unless he killed somebody else. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there's a bloody hand and some plastic, so yep. pretty pretty clear what that is. <laughs> uh, I was curious, like, would this not have started smelling even in the closet at this point? Or I don't know enough to say what, when the body starts to smell after dying. But um, It's probably to your credit yeah, that you yeah, don't know yeah, that. I'm kind of glad I know. But so he carries not the, being a medical professional. Yeah. <laughs> he carries the golf bag out to the car, puts her in the trunk. Uh, and then uh, puts the top down on the convertible, all while singing that song from Oklahoma, "Surrey with the Surrey fringe. with the Fringe," which uh, yeah, top, yeah. Uh, which is great. And he's just kind of whistling along, being Leland. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, or Bob, or, or Bobland, Bob. or Lee Bob. Who knows where Leland ends and Bob begins these days? Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah. So then we move to the sh- back to the sheriff's station where Ben Horn is in his jail cell, uh, trying to wipe it down with a handkerchief, and so he could brush his teeth. Um, and in walks in his brother Jerry, who is back from Japan, and we know this because he has a little mini Japanese flag in his breast pocket. And, also, uh, because he says "Konnichiwa" exactly. in his Jerry way. Exactly, and Jerry is there uh, to represent Ben since uh, Leland is is indisposed and his can't be his usual lawyer. And so, so I guess Jerry's a lawyer too. Uh, uh, apparently, yeah. although not a very good one by yeah. his own admission. <laughs> exactly. And so he, and so he immediately asks Ben 
did you kill her? Of which Ben is disgusted by the question. And Jerry's response, which I love, is great. The last thing a good defense attorney needs is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, before the scene gets weird, I want to point out. Before it gets weird. <laughs> well, I know. It gets weirder. Yeah. I want to point out that Jerry is reading a NOLO press That's law great. book. Uh, which if anybody doesn't know is kind of a, like a, the cliffs notes for law students. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes people who want to, you know, DIY it, uh, will buy Nolo press books because it'll help them brush up, uh, on stuff. So, I mean, this is like going to, you know, a, a literature professor uh, to ask a question about Shakespeare and they pull off the cliff notes and are like, well, hold on. Let me, let me see if I can find an answer to that. Yeah. And I, I, I do know Nolo Press because I do believe I bought a uh, How to Write a Business Plan book by them. In uh-huh. Yeah. In exactly, 2002. Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So we get the sense that Jerry's not the best lawyer, but he's all he's got right now. And so they immediately start uh, breaking down. Uh, what possibly uh, what they you know what the case looks like, and he's asking him about the night who where was Ben that that night of it, and he Ben reveals he was with Catherine that night, and as we know they believe Ca- Catherine perished in the fire, um, so they've got no way to con- you know confirm that alibi. Um, then you know Jerry takes out a pipe and Ben takes out a cigar and they start smoking, which I guess is okay in jail. You can smoke, that's fine. Back then, it was a different different time. time. It was also Twin Peaks, I guess. And Jerry jumps up on the top bunk of the bunk beds in the jail cell and immediately starts reminiscing about their childhood, uh, to which he asked Ben if he remembers Denise Dombrowski uh, dancing with a flashlight on the hooked rug. And uh, then we get a very David Lynchian uh, flashback to this moment in the Horn Brothers' life where a young Louise Dombrowski dances with the flashlight while Denise. they... Denise. Denise uh, Dombrowski. Denise. I'm sorry. Denise Dombrowski. Whatever. Louise. That's weird. Louise would never yeah. have done this. Yeah. Denise Dombrowski um, uh, dancing with the flashlight to a kind of whimsical 50s song and this goes on for a very long time. <laughs> it's, that's what makes it so Malinchian. Yes. Is the yeah. length of time that we're just watching their reaction and then cutting back to Denise and then cutting back to the reaction and then cutting back to Denise. And she's just dancing with a flashlight. Like, right. that's it. That's all she does. She doesn't, it doesn't turn into anything else. Also, I'm pretty sure that was a weaved rug that she was dancing on. It did not look hooked to me. Hook rug. Well, so what's interesting about this is, no, it's, it's Louise. Tom, I knew I was right. I'm looking on IMDb. Oh, it is. Yeah, oh, okay. I take a no. I my notes were wrong. Yeah, I, I wrote Denise, and I apologize. No, it's okay. Yeah, I just I was like, why I wouldn't have written it, yeah, but I, I just looked in two sources, and it is Louise Dombrowski, which is a great name. Um, Fair enough. Fair I enough. Love, I, I'm love sorry, the, Denise. I didn't mean to impugn your character. <laughs> I love the song in this flashback. I think it's fantastic. I think the direction of her dancing, and it's got that weird Lynchian kind of like almost the frame rate is off. Yeah. And she's completely cast in shadow because it's kind of dark, but she's dancing with a flashlight. Who knows what situation this is? Um, Interestingly enough, uh, Louise Dombrowski is played by Emily Fincher, who was the assistant to Greg Feinberg, the supervising producer of Twin Peaks. So they just needed a woman to dance. So they must have been like, here, you go on. So I like that. Mother of David Fincher? Uh, I don't believe there's – I I did look for that. I don't believe there's any relationship between her and David Fincher. Just just um, check yeah, and, and it looks as if she – this is her only acting credit, and her last uh, credit on IMDb was she was uh, continued to work with Greg Feinberg on a show on the air where she assisted for one episode, and then she got out of it. So, uh, huh. yeah. What a weird thing to be asked yeah, to do. Right? Yeah, yeah, but she's in Twin Peaks. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, and then they come back from the flashback, and then that's, that's the end of the scene. 
Um, just a very long. Flashback. Yeah, this scene actually does not contribute to the development of their characters or the plot. It's such a weird little diversion. Perceptible it's, way. Yeah, yeah, it's merely mood setting. That's all it is. So we cut. Uh, we cut to the front, to the public facing portion of the sheriff's office, where Lucy is returned with her sister Gwen and Yay, Gwen's baby. Lucy's back. Um, her Gwen, her sister Gwen, is played by Kathleen Wilhote or Wilhote. I don't know mm-hmm. how to pronounce that. Um, I recognized her as Luke's sister on Gilmore Liz. Girls. Yeah, yeah. Liz, yeah. So um, it was nice to see that kind of. And she's yeah, if you go look if you go look at her on IMDb, she's just a she's a working actress. Yeah, she, she is. She's been on a lot of stuff. Um, Good job there, and we Kathleen. Get, and we get a great early 90s uh, borderline racist conversation between Gwen and Hawk uh, that involves a lot of term, a lot of uh, terms like natives and white people. How you must hate us white people. Uh, and, and this one, I feel, is in fact definitely on purpose. Yes. They are, they are hanging a, a big flag on this conversation and and saying, yeah, sometimes people talk like this. Yep. And Hawk is very much the better man and says, some of my best friends are white people. Yep. Uh, so then we cut to the Great Northern, where Cooper is updating Diane about what happened the day before with the one-armed man. Um, and, uh, you know, explained to her all the events from the previous episode. And we see Leland dancing in the, lo- in the lobby of the Great Northern with his putter, amusing the guests. Um, Did they not do previously ons? At this time, I can't remember. I don't think they did. I really because a lot of exposition in these episodes. I've noticed that a lot, and yeah. it's not unusual for '80s television shows, uh, which this is still on the cusp of, to have these sort of like if it's if it's a a, a story arc to kind of catch you up somehow at some point during yeah. the episode. Yeah, and and the the I mean honestly, this could be sh- this show could be called Exposition Peaks at times because like <laughs> they spend lots of times on exposition, but, twin expositions. Yeah, nonetheless. Uh, so as Leland is dancing, uh, Cooper and Truman go to tell Leland what happened with Ben, um, and uh, Leland kind of re- uh, reacts in disbelief, but then you know kind of steals himself and says that he trusts the law; it will sort things out. This becomes a really interesting scene because Leland walks away crying and kind of turns the corner, but we know Leland is Bob. Right. Cooper and Truman. We know he knows that this happened. Right. Yeah. And well, he doesn't know that Ben was arrested, but he knows that he that, that he killed Laura, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I meant. Yeah, so exactly. hearing the news that Ben is getting arrested for it, Bob can cannot contain his uh, amusement by this, and we get a big shit-eating grin to the point where he just starts la- – he can't stop laughing, and it's the kind of giggling of, like, a, a guilty party getting away with it, you know? And I realized when watching this that this is the moment where this might be the pivotal moment in season two that that explains the downfall of Twin Peaks because this is the moment that we now know more than Cooper. Yeah, and so it is, it, it's a weird situation because on the one hand – Watching Cooper be suspicious in this yep. scene increases your respect for Cooper. Like, yep. oh, he's not entirely fooled. That's great. But he has always been one step ahead of everyone, including you. And we we have been in the dark as much as he has yeah. been. And we don't know what's happening. But now – and the, the rest of this episode takes this tone with Cooper and Leland – in that we're like, he's the guy, and you're pointing at the TV, and you want to tell Cooper what's going on, and it changes the role of us as the viewers in watching the episode. No, that's a really good perspective. Right? Because it does change the tenor of Twin Peaks. I don't know whether that's the downfall or not, uh, but it doesn't. 
it doesn't help. I think I think it's a part of the downfall. Maybe I'm being yeah, hyperbolic yeah. in that, but I think I think changing the role us as the audience played with the show at the time, flipping that now that we know what's going on and we know who the killer is, it just cha- changes your approach to it and changes the kind of be- the 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 wide-eyed curiosity. Because the, the fun show. is having Cooper reveal things to you. Exactly. And right. showing, you know, what an expert agent he is. Yep. And what ABC made them do was put you ahead of Cooper. Yep. And and I don't want to be ahead of Cooper. I don't know about you. No. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Yeah, I, it's it's not believable for me to be ahead of Cooper, yeah. right? And so it's you almost not that you have a guilty feeling as a viewer, but you always it's almost an uncomfortable position of like, well, why do I know this and he doesn't? Right. And so so then what you've got is you've got the situation where you your hope you, this tension is building because you know what's going on and Cooper doesn't. So as Leland walks away, and then does his crying and then it into, turns the corner and starts laughing. Cooper gets a little suspicious, like you mentioned, and follows after him. And Leland's got his back to him. And then Cooper, you know, asks him if everything's OK. And you see the moment of Leland trying to regain his composure and go back to, OK, pretend like everything's fine. And, you know, and have that exchange and then and then turning back and, you know, kind of rolling his eyes and laughing at it, you know, and then dances away. You know, it just it's it's a weird, you know, kind of they're trying to build attention for us as the viewer in that. Yeah, yeah. We want Cooper to figure it out, but he's not going to. And it happens again later in the episode. I just thought that was interesting. And that, that was my realization and watching it at this moment. The other uh, thing here that, that strikes me odd is the dancing, because the dancing feels like Leland dealing with grief yep. up until now. And this kind of goofy dancing off that he does, the, you know, sort of 20s era you know, vaudevillian thing feels like it's supposed to be a creepy Bob thing. Yep. But it's not Bob's character. Bob's wild. Bob screams. Bob crawls and crouches. Bob doesn't do goofy vaudeville dances. It maybe he does, but it does, that doesn't seem to be very Bob-like to me. Right. And I agree with that. I mean, it's a it's a weird merging of their two personalities. Like yeah, the dancing yeah. is Leland, and and it, it continues to be like where, where it is how in control is Bob of Leland? You know, sure. And and, and and it makes you question everything. But after this, whatever. So anyway, so uh, so Leland dances off, uh, and we go back to the sheriff's office where now Doc Hayward cannot not be involved in everything that goes on in the sheriff's station. <laughs> and, and he's taking a uh, blood sample from Ben. Um, Jerry protests this treatment, uh, starts saying, you know, never seen a client be treated this way. And Cooper just shuts him down by basically going through Jerry's uh, CV, going through his resume. Uh, apparently he went to, he graduated last in his class at Gonzaga, uh, had his license revoked in Illinois, Florida, Alaska, Massachusetts. Um, and it's just this great Cooper moment where it's just like, okay, Jerry, I know who you are. Yeah. Like, which is, which well, is like great. And the, wor- the worst part about this is, and Ben should know this, a blood test is absolutely what Ben needs yeah, because exactly. it won't match yeah. anything. And Jerry doesn't know that. So, of course, Jerry's doing what he should do, which is protest and see if he can get it stopped. So now what's weird is that Doc Hayward takes the blood test and says, I'll have the results in a couple hours, but we never hear from him again this episode. Yeah, um, kind of irrelevant. No, it's a little bit, but yeah. But so um, uh, more in context later in the episode, but uh, – mm. But uh, so at that point, now Cooper starts talking to Ben and starts leaning on him. Uh, he's trying to get him to confess. He t- takes out Laura's secret diary, puts it on the table, says, do you know what this is? And I love this moment. And Jerry leans over and whispers, a book. <laughs> and then Ben says, it's a book. <laughs> like, I like that. <laughs> like, like he's trying to be his counsel. 
Um, yeah. But uh, but then Cooper starts reading from the book. He reads the bit that Laura says about I'll tell the world about Ben Horn and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Ben gets upset, and Jerry asks him for a moment. And uh, and at this point, uh, Jerry's advice to Ben is that he should get a better lawyer. Yeah. Also, I love when Cooper starts playing the you know the good cop. Like, yeah. come on, Ben, we're all adults here. Yep. Let's let's just chat about what really happened. Uh, and of course he's not going to get that out of him for multiple reasons, but, um, but it's interesting to see the approach Cooper takes with questioning a suspect like this. Yeah. 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 See him play cop. Um, so then we cut over to, we cut over to Leo's house where Bobby is so early nineties with his do rag on. He's got a bandana (laughs) on his head and he's got it. Just popped out of the E street band. Exactly. Oh, it's not a good look. And he's got a micro cassette record, uh, tape recorder player and he's playing back the tape that he found in Leo's boot. And he's also got a stereo with a microphone and he's recording the micro cassette with on a regular cassette. Which just made I was like, this is so nineties. Yeah, like, <laughs> I've done that. I, me too. Just to totally. be fair, I'm yeah. not I'm not looking down on Bobby, but it it is of the time. Exactly, but the 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 tape is in fact uh, Ben Horn talking to Hank or no, talking to Leo about burning the um about burning the mill down, and so it's it's incriminating evidence, and so Bobby realizes this is my chance to kind of get some money out of out of a rich guy like Ben Horn, and so he uh, writes a. Uh, a note to Ben, we should talk, and puts it and puts the cassette in with the tape, and then tells Shelley that uh, he's gonna he's gonna go pursue an executive job and give her whatever she wants. Yeah, um, a career in business. Yeah, yeah exactly. So he, he's gonna blackmail Ben into hiring him at the Great Northern. So, um, so now we cut back to the diner where uh, Norma is behind the counter and her mother comes in. Uh, we it's I feel like this is a TV show where it's like the new characters get introduced. It's like, oh, mom, what are you doing here? You know, I'm critiquing your potatoes. That's what I'm doing here. Exactly. Immediately sampling the potatoes and questioning how they're made. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Norma's mother has come in with her new husband, Ernie. Uh, and they're on their honeymoon. Uh, and you can tell Ernie's a big shot because he's got a fancy cellular phone. Uh, <laughs> yes, a mobile phone. Mobile phone, right? And it's it's enormous, by the way. It is like yeah. a yeah, it's bigger than a. Is Zach that a Dynatac? It might be a Dynatac. It might be. Um, so Norma's mother is played by Jane Greer, uh, who actually was a, uh, a '40s and '50s actress in a lot of film noir movies with like Robert Mitchum and James Cagney. Right. So I wonder if this is a case of David Lynch and Frost going, oh, fine. oh, she was in these movies. Let's cast Can we her. get Jay yeah. Greer? That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, good, good stunt casting there. Um, Norma explains to her mother that she's, uh, that she's worried about this food critic that's supposed to be coming to the diner. So she's still waiting for the food critic to come. Mm. Uh, oh, so finally. I remember I was wondering that yes. a few episodes back. Now it's a, that shoe dropped again, if anyone yeah. still remembered it. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were worried about that, Tom. Um, and so Norma's explaining that she's got to stay at the diner to work on that. Her mother kind of wants to help. But uh, they've got to get to the Great Northern Hotel because Ernie's got a fax from Tokyo waiting for him. Uh, and he's been talking about gold figures when he was on. You know, he's a big-time financial guy, apparently. Big shot, except that he left his newspaper on the counter. And as they leave, Norma picks it up, and it's got a, 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 a hot tip to put $1,000 on Houston by three points. So, sloppy, sloppy, yeah, exactly. Ernie. So sloppy. Ernie's just a, you know, just a really. Sloppy. You leave that newspaper lying around. Come on, yep. come on. So uh, uh, this is this is one of the strongest subplots 
that we've had in a while. We've been yes. very focused on the case yep. uh, the past few episodes. So we're, we're starting to build up the more soap opera aspect of Twin Peaks with this. Yeah, yeah. This is a, this is a new storyline that, that, I mean, I was glad. We talk about that balance between the subplots that will continue the show into season two and the case. And we've mm. been very case heavy. And now that we're kind of like letting off the gas on the case, and now we've got to bring in some other drama as it comes in. Because so. even the Bobby Shelley plotline has its roots in the in case lore in, yeah. in the case because exactly. of leo's involvement yeah so uh we cut back to the great northern hotel and uh mike the one-armed man or philip or however you want to call him uh is in bed and he wakes up saying he's close and uh asks for a nurse to get him a glass of water which i immediately wonder why is he in the great northern hotel yeah why is he not at the sheriff's station or the hospital why isn't he under guard? I mean, yeah. I know he doesn't belong in jail, right. but if they're essentially keeping him prisoner in the Great Northern, wouldn't they do that in a more secure location? Exactly. And so let's remember this observation later um, because it comes up again. But uh, so he's he's awake. He's aware. He sends the nurse out to get some water. There's a uh, red shirt deputy sitting outside. Uh, of which Mike then knocks him out, apologizes, and then jumps out the window. So Mike's back. I'm on the- sorry. Uh, Goodbye, everybody. I'm off. I was like, oh, good things on the first floor. So, yeah, right. Um, so we cut back to the diner. You might be remembering uh, that back at the One-Eyed Jacks, Hank was captured by Jean Renault, and that was right. several, several days ago. Well, Hank just strolls back into the diner. We're not, we're not going to deal with that. Hank got away somehow. <laughs> and I, I'll give Norma credit because Hank goes, sorry, I got caught up in some business. And Norma goes, for 48 hours? Like it's- <laughs> yeah. Norma is us as the viewer in this scene. Like, yeah. no, well, that's not okay. Well, I'm not going to explain. So you're just going to have to deal with it. So what's unfortunate, though, is that then Norma, I, 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 I like Norma standing up to Hank and demanding to know what happened. And then Hank proceeds to gaslight the shit out of her in telling her that, listen, I know a lot of bad guys and they really want to bring me down and people in my past want to see me fail. And I was dealing with that. And she takes it hook, line and sinker and just buckles like a belt and tells them to ask for help next time. And they laugh. Just ask for help next time. Norma, 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 Norma. Also, for some reason, my mom is back from the Great Northern checking in, not with Ernie and cooking. (laughs) Right. Exactly. For no. I mean, she did offer to help previously. So I guess she did. You're right. Um, But then mom and Hank chat and they decide to make plans for dinner at later that night at the Great Northern so they can all celebrate the the marriage of her and Ernie. So Um, so we cut back to the sheriff's office where Truman is in his office bird watching as Pete Martell comes in. And I love how excited Pete got for the woodpecker that Truman was looking at. Like there's a little moment of like, oh, these are guys who just live in the woods and this is what they do. This is Um, one of those great slice of life things that always plays well for me when I watch this, which is I've known people who are birders. I'm not. And I've seen them interact like this. And I, I believe this scene 100 percent yeah yeah this is this was very very well done um but the reason why pete is there is because he's there to tell uh truman that josie's gone and truman says no i know i was there and um and pete's you know upset because uh he, he admits that he loved josie and truman goes well, I did, he I says did too. i loved her yeah and they were just kind of talking about Catherine. yep ish 
And so I got, I'm always confused what I'm, I'm assume you're right that he means Josie. That, I think that he makes means sense. Josie, yeah. And he admits that he loved her, but, but it's not, a little confusing. But yeah, but, and they're throwing love around in a dramatic kind of way. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I, he's saying that he loved her, but he didn't love her like sexually. He loved her like he loved, ha- like he loved, you yeah, tell, yeah, he yeah. loved having her around. Like but, Uncle Pete. Yeah, loved, exactly. Yeah. But Truman did love her. So, but it was a nice little moment of, of, you know, kind of uh, emotion there. And then, um, Truman says, you know, yeah, I saw, when I was there, I saw her with her assistant. Pete's like, assistant? What are you That's her cousin. And mm. we start to realize that Josie told them two different things, and Pete's got yep. a bad feeling about this, and, and Truman agrees. Um, uh, Harry explains that she sold the mill to Ben, filling in Pete. They're kind of, I feel like they should have compared these notes sooner, but, you know, mm. it's, it's tough. There's a lot going on. Um, but then Cooper arrives to interrupt the whole thing. Yes, to uh, inform that the one-armed man is missing. And uh, Truman goes, all right, Pete, I got to deal with this. And then leaves. Truman likes to leave people in his office. And yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't seem very like a very secure policy yeah, that he exactly. pursues. But exactly. OK. So they run off to go deal with that. And uh, Lucy then is in the front of the office watering plants with the baby in her arms. And Andy comes in and Andy sees Lucy and the baby and immediately faints. And Which I mean, come on, a little comedy. Lucy hasn't been pregnant that long. But I know, yeah, you that's know, Andy. He, you know, he's wondering how did that happen. But uh, while this happens, we see Pete sneaking in the background, and we realize that Pete is there to go see Ben in jail, and just kind of and gets brought back to see to visit him, and uh, starts laughing at him, starts mocking him, and then pulls out a very large tape deck and plays an audio tape of Catherine. I actually uh, have a tape deck like just like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Still, <laughs> it's a, I remember that model. It was a good one. But, yeah. um, you know, and so Catherine starts uh, explaining to Ben that she's alive, that she knows what's up and he's in a bad position and she could help him out. But she'll and she will do so uh, to trade for the mill back and all of Ghostwood, uh, basically giving Ben no, you know, kind of no options there. You know, either she could help him get out of jail with by corroborating his alibi or let him rot. Um, Pete is great in this scene. Uh, just laughing it up. Yep. Okay there, Benji. Calls him Benji. Yep. Uh, and then after he finishes playing her message, he kisses the tape recorder. Yep. And then in classic Pete old-fashioned style says, she's a caution, isn't she? <laughs> it's, it's nice to see Pete and Catherine as a united front here. Yeah, and it's Pete's, a man, and Pete's, dangerous and Pete's, team. Yeah, Pete's reveling. I mean, at this point, Pete knows what's up, and I'm sure Catherine told him everything that happened, but... She's picked her, you know, like all the cards are on the table. And, and so he's enjoying helping her get her revenge. Uh, yeah. Which he is, has no love for Ben. Yeah. Now, I, now, so Pete then leaves and Ben proceeds to trash his cell in anger and, you know, mumbling, uh, mumbling that she, you know, that, 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 uh, that she, she's fooled her or, you know, he's very upset about this, you know, rips up the pillow, feathers everywhere, and then stops, composes himself and adjusts his tie. Uh, which I thought was a nice little touch on Richard Bamer on the acting side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we go back to Leland, uh, where he is now driving, still singing Surrey with the Fringe on Top. And um, uh, and he's driving very, very Sunday driver-esque as he's weaving in and out of lanes. Um, and then we see Cooper and Truman in Truman's truck driving to go, I guess, back to the hotel. And Cooper's whistling the same song, which I was like, oh, that's a nice, that's an interesting note that they. Where'd that come from? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Is there a connection? Hmm. But then uh, Leland is driving towards Cooper and Truman. And I, I like how Cooper casually asks if uh, driver's education is required in these parts. <laughs> and Truman's like, well, of course. And Cooper goes, oh, we got somebody who needs to take it again. And they, they almost hit uh, Leland. 
Um, and then so they quickly do a U-turn and they pull Leland over and he apologizes, says that he must have been thinking about Ben and got distracted. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. And now this is where it gets interesting because he te- he tell first he tells Cooper, oh, I did remember something. The night Laura died, I was working late with Ben and he went to make a phone call and he's angry with somebody. He mentioned something about a dairy. And Cooper corrects him and says a diary. And he's like, right, that could be it. So effing clever. Exactly. So he's helping him along, right? And then at that point, uh, the radio buzzes and Truman goes over to answer it. And it's Lucy telling them, uh, giving Truman an update. And so Cooper is there left talking to Leland. And they start talking about golf where Cooper admits that he uh, has played golf before. And Leland goes, oh, let me show you my new clubs. And uh, so he goes to the trunk to open the trunk where we know is the golf bag with Maddie's body. And he pulls out a, uh, a golf club. And at that moment, Truman yells to Cooper that they found uh, Gerard. They found Mike, the one-armed man. And for a moment, it looks like Leland is going to hit Cooper with the golf club. Yeah, I always right? wondered what's supposed to happen in this scene, what, what I'm supposed to get out of this scene. Is Bob going to murder Cooper and Truman I here? Think, I think so. I think, Bob, I think Bob is so in control of Leland right now that he just does not give a crap about who, who's getting yeah. his way. And so then why bother with the stuff about the dairy and the diary? Yeah. Is that just Bob messing with them for I fun? don't know, but it is definitely a moment when he pulls back that, that club when you see Cooper turn to uh, to Truman, it looks like he's about to hit him. Uh, so, and this this is the scene I think about when I think about the middle of season two. Yeah. When I think about when I, I always think of it, there's there's season one, and then there's the first half of season two, and I always think about this as the end of the first half because when I saw this the first time. I could not believe they didn't catch him there. Yep. I was a well, little, actually a little angry the first time around of like, no, we're, we're stringing this out even longer. Come on. We all know who it is. Catch him. And it ties into what you were talking about earlier. Exactly. Of, I do, I'm impatient. I don't want to be in charge of information that Cooper and Truman don't have. Exactly. This is another moment of frustration because we know that it's Bob and we know Cooper is right there. And I know the feeling that they were going for is that tension and that like nail biting and that all that kind of stuff, but it becomes more frustrating than, than intriguing. Um, so, but anyway, so Cooper trots back. He runs back to the van so they can go off to go see the one-armed man. And Leland gets back in the car and looks in the rearview mirror. And sure enough, it's Bob in the rearview mirror again. And uh, I love Bob. your notes, by the Bob. way. I wish people could see these, like, all caps, Bob. panicked, Bob, Bob in mirror. <laughs> Bob, Bob, Bob. So, uh, so we get a little interlude of the waterfall. And then we cut back to the sheriff's office. And I feel like this is, like, the third or fourth time that Hawk has brought in the one-armed man to the sheriff's office. Like, How many times? I know. It's what he's thinking to himself. How many times How many am times I going to bring this guy this? in and they're just going to let him go again? Yeah. So as Hawk brings in the one-armed man, uh, Lucy is holding ice to Andy's head because after his fainting moment – and Lucy's sister there is talking about how she was fainting when she was pregnant, and she's babbling, babbling, babbling. And Andy starts whispering to Lucy because he wants to talk to her about his sperm count and all that sort of stuff. But Gwen will not shut up. Uh, she keeps eavesdropping and interjecting to the to their conversation. Andy looks annoyed. Lucy looks annoyed. And they both finally tell her to shut up. And so she storms her off all annoyed. And then uh, Andy fills in Lucy that he could be the father, uh, to which Lucy just says, oh, brother. So we still don't yeah. know if Lucy kept the baby or not. So we're. Well, and and she thought she had this figured out. Right. And now it's like, oh, 
Well, if, if Dick Tremaine's the father, it's a whole different calculation than if Andy's the father. Yep, exactly. So then we go deeper into the sheriff's office where Mike is uh, smelling Ben to see if he is Bob. And, yes. uh, and he, he, doesn't, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't let on. He doesn't smell Bob on Ben. Um, no, he's so, been close, though. Yeah, he's been close, but it's not now. him. And so at this point, Jerry demands that they either charge him or let him go. And Truman, very dramatically, once again, what is Truman here to do? He is here to uh, <laughs> to arrest people for the murder of Laura Palmer. And so yep. we get a, a strong proclamation from him that he is, he is under arrest for the murder of Laura Palmer. Um, and then Truman tells Hawk to take uh, Mike back to the hotel. Why not well, keep him there? It's really? Like, <laughs> I mean, I guess there's something there's something to the idea of... He's not committed a crime, so we don't want to lock him up in jail. Yep. But I, I've certainly seen, and I don't know if it's, there's any truth to it, but I've certainly seen other shows where they, they keep someone in jail for security and not as a trick, just as sort of like, you know, I'm really sorry you have to be in these accommodations. But usually it's like in an interrogation room or something like that. Wouldn't they even the interrogation rooms be more secure than the Great Northern? Right, yeah. What, what, having him on premise i think is the is the key I mean, thing here but for some reason they have yeah the more convenient yeah. but yeah. i guess they feel like oh well he's, he'll be more comfortable yeah so then <laughs> at nice that, soft yeah so at that point then they step out of the room and cooper pulls truman aside and says that he doesn't think ben did it and they should release him um and i i forget exactly what what cooper says but it's like the cart before the horse you know like we're you know he, he he's got a bad feeling about this and truman finally puts his foot down in a rare yeah. like them disagreeing right that uh and truman says we've got evidence we've got motive um and i'm tired of the of the giants and the midgets and the dreams and the mumbo jumbo and the hocus mm. po- pocus but we've got evidence and i need and it's my job to make it a, to make this arrest I am and, several of the critiques of this show right now. Yep, <laughs> exactly. And so Cooper says, you know, you're right. Uh, this is your backyard. And, and uh, says he backs off and, and stays, yeah. sticks with it. Um, well, and what I, what's interesting about this is you've kind of expected this reaction from Harry a long time ago. It's a yeah. long time coming. Yeah. Uh, it seems I guess it makes sense that he's frustrated enough to just want to do it. And he doesn't want Cooper to get in his way this time. Um but it seems like he would have maybe done it before. But okay, so he does it now, and this is Cooper at his best, where he's like, you know what, I need to respect the boundaries. Right. Yeah. And and it, and it plays into their relationship a little, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so then we uh, cut back to the Great Northern, where Norma, Hank, and Ernie and Vivian, Norma's mother, are all having dinner, and it opens with Norma criticizing the salmon that she ate. Uh, so she criticized the potatoes earlier. She was curious about yeah. the potatoes. Now she's criticizing the salmon. Man, mm. nag, nag, nag. A lot of criticizing. Um, yeah. And the ladies step aside to go powder their nose, and we reveal that Ernie and Hank know each other from prison. Uh, he was Ernie the Ernie, Professor Niles. The Professor. I never thought I'd see you again. So what are the odds that... <laughs> That Ernie right? would would shack up with Hank's wife's Crazy mother. Crazy coincidence. That's very very strange. But anyway, so Hank is given Ernie the you know kind of the he's saying okay well what's the grift what's the plan here what's the and Ernie's explaining that uh, that he's on the, the 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 straight and narrow that they they met at a Republican fundraiser. Which now has a much, I mean, back then it was pretty bad, but now it's like, oh, really? Are you kidding? Um, That's the Reagan years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was Bush at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah you're right. Yeah. At this point, uh, President Bush is in office. Yeah, but, the first. Um, 
but uh, you know that he's he's trying to he's on the straight and narrow. He's telling the truth, but she doesn't know that he was in prison. Um, so please don't you know don't say anything. To which you see Hank eyes light up and he sees the opportunity. Right. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And he plays it right up to the edge as Norma and Vivian are walking back. Uh, He he says something that out of context doesn't mean anything, but is damning to Ernie and makes Ernie super uncomfortable. So he's he's signaling like I I I can end you at any time. Yep. Um, And he kind of celebrates that by proposing a toast to the newlyweds. Uh, where uh, Ernie, Vivian, and Norma are all drinking wine, and Hank then chugs a beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ernie's trying to change. He's trying yeah. to become part of society. Yep. But uh, classy Hank chugging the beer in the Great Northern I, I, room. Hey, man, there's nothing yeah. unclassy about drinking a beer. Maybe there's something unclassy about Hank, but, exactly. but we're not condemning beer drinkers here, yeah. as Ron and I are both beer drinkers. Yes, exactly. So uh, we stay in the Great Northern Hotel now, but we cut to Cooper's room, and we know it's there because it's a shot of a slice of cherry pie and a glass of milk on the nightstand. Mm, not cherry pie. Yeah. And uh, Cooper is talking to Diane, and I noticed that he's still – he's got a shirt off, which is kind of hunky for Kyle McLaughlin, but uh, mm-hmm. he's still got a bandage wrapped around his midsection. He's still reminding me that he was wounded, so that's – Right. It hasn't been that long. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Cooper is telling Diane that he's feeling that they're finally close to the end of the trail. Um, and he, and he says that I'm very close. The last few steps are always darkest and the most difficult. So you get a sense that Cooper knows that they're close. Um, he gets a knock on the door and God damn it. Finally, he goes for his gun before he opens the door. (laughs) About time. time. Yeah. (laughs) Live and learn. Agent Cooper. I mean, live and learn. He's been shot at before this, before he ever showed up at Twin Peaks. Come on. Yeah. But, um, but at the door is Audrey who, by the way, is totally okay after being doped up on heroin now yeah. a, day, a day later. She, you know, the, she might have a little headache. She she's rebounded fine. really well. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Shook it off. But um, she's asking if uh, his father, if her father was arrested and if it was, if he was arrested because of what she told Cooper. And Cooper navigates this conversation very strategically and explaining, like, whether he's guilty or not is up to the courts. And he's not revealing to Audrey his suspicions and that sort of thing. Um and Audrey, you know, confesses that all she ever wanted was her father to love her, um, which is sad. And then she just climbs on the bed like she owns the place. Well, I guess she does own the place. But um, and she's sort of. and she starts to explain to Cooper that while she was a one-eyed Jack, she didn't let anybody. And Cooper cuts her off, telling her she doesn't need to, to explain it. Uh, basically, saying answering our question was, did she work at all? But she didn't work. So um, answers our question, but also make sure that let to let Cooper know that. She's saving herself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> on the bed. Should he be concerned about that? Yeah. Uh, uh. This this scene doesn't play as well. Before we get to the phone ringing, this scene doesn't play as well for me as the first Audrey scene. Right. The first Audrey scene was weird and sexy and uncomfortable and and all all very Twin Peaks things. This felt very mundane. Yeah. Even when she pops herself up on the bed, it feels more. It feels more friendly and. I know we're trying to turn this into a less controversial relationship uh, in that way, but it, it it struck me as trying to redo the first time Audrey came through, and I'm and I'm not sure how much we really get out of it. Right, agreed, agreed. It it definitely doesn't feel the air doesn't crackle as much as it used to. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, it's definitely muted. And I don't know if it's because they're already putting the brakes on the romance angle. If Lara Flamboyle threw her hissy fit and Mm -hmm. Tom McLaughlin said, stop doing it. Like, I I don't know if there's something in the performance or whatnot, but it definitely doesn't have the same magic. It did the first season. 
Um, I don't know if I'd characterize it as a hissy fit. It well, seems like a I mean, that's, that's how fairly legitimate reported. concern, perhaps. Well, well, it was a little bit of jealousy. It was a little bit of like, yeah, because you know, you know, they, they were dating and she didn't like him cozying up next to Sherilyn Finn, who's in Playboy. And she might have expressed her concerns very logically. That's all maybe, I'm saying. Yes. Yeah, I know. True. Maybe. Maybe I'm editorializing a little. <laughs> so, um, so at this point, they're interrupted by a phone call and Cooper answers it and he's very concerned on the call. And uh, you can hear very faintly on the phone that it's them saying we found a body. And, and he, and I, said, I could not hear that the first three times I watched this on on broadcast television or a VHS tape. I never heard that. And yeah. it was um and it was uh not in the closed captioning because I wa- now I watch the show with the closed captioning on because I want to catch little phrases and that wasn't, uh-huh. it wasn't captioned. So, but anyway, he immediately tells Audrey to go to her room and lock her door. We get a sense that this is really bad. And now we cut to uh, to we're out in the woods. We get a waterfall, and then we get the sense of a crime scene, the flashing lights, a lot of a lot of activity. I thought this was interesting that this mixed with shots of the crime scene with a POV shot of Truman and Cooper walking through the crime scene, which mm-hmm. which is we don't get much POV shots other than um, I think there there was with the the murder with Laura and Bob and that sort of thing, but we never really get many POV shots. Um, but we they walk up to the river. As a body is being pulled out, a body wrapped in plastic, and sure enough, it's Maddie. And yeah. we, we get Laura's theme swells, and it ends with uh, the police lights flashing on Maddie's uh, dead body face. And uh, that's uh, how the episode Cheryl ends. Lee, once yeah. again, wrapped Kill. in plastic, back yeah. where she started. Yep. Now, so. here's the thing this feels like it could have been used to end a series, right? Yep. yep. Uh, and yet it doesn't. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind going forward. Yes. Yeah, well, we're going to discuss that as well, but, uh, yeah, it's, and it shows that Bob is struck again and, and it, it, coming off of Cooper's concern that there, we know this is, again, we know what happened. We know why and everything. I, I, I just feel as if they'd kept this a mystery and Maddie turned up dead, we'd all would have been mind blown more than watching last episode and watching Bob do it. Yeah. So. Imagine if the series ends, and, and again, we're, we're going to get to an interesting theory on all of this, but yeah. imagine if the series ends this way, except we've already caught Leland. Yep. So instead of showing us, but not Cooper, let's say the last episode shows Cooper catching Leland yep. and they prevent the murder of Maddie, but we don't know what happens to Bob. Lots yep. of people doubt there is a Bob. They just think Leland did it. And then Maddie ends up dead. And you wonder, wait, where did Bob go now? You know, and you kick off a whole new mystery. Yeah. That's not what happened. It's not, unfortunately. (laughs) Anyway, um, so that wraps up the episode, uh, which means that it's time to check in with Diane and let her know the the things that we noted in this episode. Uh, Tom, do you want to do you want to lead us off? Yeah, my note for this one is uh, it was nice to see Piper Laurie in the credits. Uh, and I loved that they not only credited her as Catherine Martell, but also Mr. Tojimura. Yeah. Even though he's not in this episode. Yeah, exactly. I just thought, that's just them having fun with it, right? I yeah. Mean, it's got to be. So they're, they're letting the people who are paying attention know, just in case you didn't realize, yes, indeed, that was her. So um, I've got a couple notes here that we can talk about. The first one is when uh, Leland is loading Maddie into his car and then pulls out of his driveway. We get a clear shot of his license plate, and I've got to assume that's on purpose. So you got to you got to assume that everything is is uh, is uh, deliberate. And the license plate is seven one zero Y E P seven ten Yep seven ten Yep. And aside from being really 
fun to say, 710, yep. There's some speculation that 710 upside down spells oil. Oh. As in scorched oil and that sort of thing. Um, now, that said, for you Twin Peaks fans, it's noticeable because Leland drives the same car in the movie Fire Walk With Me, but the license plate was 759-EAK. So it's a mm-hmm. different license plate than Fire Walk With Me, which is might just be a mistake or whatnot. But who knows if they meant 710-YEP to mean that Bob is in control, oil? Who knows? I don't know. It sounds like some kind of old-fashioned code, right? Yeah, like, right? Is, five, like, like five by five means that it comes from communication technology, but it means everything's clear and connecting. Seven ten, yep, just seems like some you know it's, World it's, War Two movie. Like, yes, Commander Seven Ten, yep. It's too. It's too something. It's too sounds like something that could. It sounds too much like it could be something. So who knows if it's the oil thing? I don't know. It could be nothing. Um, the other things I noticed were just kind of stuff hanging up in the background when we're at Leo's in the kitchen when Bobby and Shelly are talking about the plan. Uh, the clowns are still hanging on the wall from the party, which I thought was funny. They didn't those creepy clowns from the Leo's Welcome Home party. Oh right, um, right. Um, also, when we're in Truman's office and he, him, and Peter bird watching, I noticed hanging on the wall is a photo of Harry S. Truman. Now I couldn't remember because I noticed that too, and yeah. I felt like, well, wait a minute, was it there before? And I just don't remember seeing I don't, it. I don't because... remember either. Yeah. 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 But um, but yeah. So uh, yeah. So nice to see that that Truman appreciates his namesake. Um, For sure. And then finally at dinner, uh, you could tell it was a fancy dinner because Hank dressed up and he wore his domino bolo tie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this domino and the domino, and the domino itself is, uh, I don't know enough of dominoes, but it's got is eight dots total. It's four and four. So, I think that's called an eight. Yeah, I think that's or an a four and four. I don't know anything <laughs> about dominoes. Yeah, though. I don't know domino terminology, but so yeah. there it is. So, um, so little observations from the episode. Fun time. So. Um, all right, cool. So now it's time to check in with at the town hall or the or the roadhouse uh, for some feedback for you. And as always, you can email us at feedback at damn fine podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and some great folks have written in. Thank you. Please keep the emails coming in. And Mike wrote in and said uh, that he saw an article and wanted to know what we thought of this idea. Um, Mike. Uh, yeah, Mike. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, good point. Uh, Mike saw this article on the website WelcomeToTwinPeaks.com, which is a great website for Twin Peaks stuff, by the way. It's 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 full of a lot of information. And the article is entitled "The Four Seasons of Twin Peaks," and it basically breaks down the the episodes um, and breaks them down instead of season one of eight episodes and season two of twenty two episodes. If you broke them down into four seasons, uh, would the show have been better in that order? Um, and Mike asked to know, what, uh, do we think the show would have felt different? Would it perhaps not have felt so uneven? Um, so what do you think about, uh, about this, uh, this four seasons theory, Tom? Oh, I, I think it's so good. And yeah. the way the author of this theory, Robert G. Peterson breaks it down works perfectly where this episode that we're talking about today is the premiere of season three, right? There's a cliffhanger episode where you learn that Leland is Bob and then season three uh, starts with, are they going to catch Bob? Now, one of the things that he says is there's a the weakest of the four seasons that he breaks it down into is this third season. Yep. Because you very quickly catch Leland, uh, or, you know, spoiler alert. I, I don't think it's a spoiler to know that they are going to eventually. But but you catch him midway and, and then you have to start adding in other 
events. Uh, and it's not until his proposed fourth season premiere that those other events start to gel in a way that makes a nice coherent story and makes Twin Peaks finish in a strong way. And I think what he encapsulates with this entire theory is my feeling that, yes, season two is not nearly as good as season one, but it still has some great moments. And it's not just a linear decline from beginning to end. There's some really good episodes towards the end of season two as well. Yeah. And I, and I agree. I think I, and we talked about this. We talked about this similar idea in, the, um, in previous episodes. And that's why I'm glad Mike emailed in calling out this particular article is that I, I believe I said it, that if they just did seven or eight episode seasons or shortened seasons, I think that we would have. We our, our heads would have collectively probably exploded, but like, yeah. um, but if, if if you look at how TV shows are now with Stranger Things and you know yes. the Netflix series and things like that, the all the sh- Marvel series, yeah, the shortest. Although I have I have a complaint about the Marvel series those, the, the, on those, Netflix. Yeah, the, the, those the, those of you who listen to iFanboy have heard me make this complaint, but I feel like the Marvel series are thirteen episodes and they're about five episodes too long. I think with with each of those Marvel series, there's like, there, there's at least one, if not two, moments in the run where it's like, oh God, get on with it. And if they just were tighter with their storytelling and cut out two or three or four episodes, those seasons would go from really good to great. But that's so there you thing. go. Yeah. So you'd yeah. be making the same complaint because yeah. if Twin Peaks were in that model, David Lynch would have done thirteen episodes, yeah. not ten. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. That's a good point. But still. But I do think. And I do think that the way this article on WelcomeToTwinPeaks.com um, breaks down the episodes does make sense. And I think that we know we t- we even said on a previous episode this feels like a season finale. Yeah. You know? And and and. To be fair, I had read Mike's email at that point, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't remember uh, where I'd seen it. So thank yeah. you, Mike. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, great email. Please email us at feedback at damn fine podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Any of your theories, anything like that, absolutely get them in. Get those emails in. Um, and, of course, you can support us over at patreon.com, uh, patreon.com slash damn fine podcast. We thank all of our patrons for their support. We're going to have some great fun surprises for you as we get closer to May and the launch of season three. Uh, so definitely the place you want to be is patreon.com slash damn fine podcast. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at damn fine cast and on Facebook at facebook.com slash damn fine podcast. Podcast. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for Driving with a Dead Girl, Spot on the Nose. Uh, come back next week where we're going to be talking about arbitrary law. Arbitrary <laughs> law, you yeah, say? Yeah. So until hmm. then, I'm Ron. I'm Tom. I'm Tom.